Hello and welcome to the AMP podcast. My name's Nick Thomas. I'm the editorial director here at Ampere Analysis, and I'm going to be your host for today. If you're new to the show or to Ampere, welcome. We hope you enjoy this episode. Just for context, Ampere Analysis is a data and analytics firm specializing in the global entertainment industry. And this podcast is all about bringing together expert voices from across the company to discuss the latest trends, research and insights in the media sector. So today, we're going to be discussing how the global streaming services are investing in content to consolidate and grow. We've seen interesting developments this year with global streamers investing in high-end TV, in movies, and increasingly in sports rights. But what's the impact of that? What does that mean for their businesses? And what's it doing to their subscriber base? So to discuss all this with me today, I've got three guests, Rahul Patel, Mesa Jamil, and Jack Genovese. So let's begin by going around the table, having our guests introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Rahul. My research largely focuses on international title tracking on video on demand platforms, and then using that data to see different companies' catalog strategies. And today I'm excited to share my latest research on the weaknesses of Netflix's original film strategy and possible paths forward for the company. Hi, I'm Mesa Jamil. I'm an analyst here at Amper, and my role is focused on tracking SVOD subscription activity in the US. Today, I'll be talking about the franchise prequels recently released by HBO Max and Amazon Prime Video, which are, of course, House of the Dragon and Rings of Power, and the role of content in acquisition versus retention. Hi, my name is Jack. I lead the research into sports broadcasting, uh, sports media rights, and sports business more widely uh, here at Ampere. And today, I'll be talking about a report that I'm working on, which looks at the role of sports into the so-called streaming wars. You are listening to the AMP podcast from Ampere Analysis. To learn more about Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com. Okay, let's start with Rahul. Now, your report on addressing the weaknesses of Netflix movie strategy was really interesting, I thought. And the title itself shows the sort of fundamental story here, which is that for Netflix, we've seen them having great success with their TV shows, but their movies aren't quite having the same impact, are they? Can you give us some more background on your research and what your initial findings were? Yeah, definitely. And that particular discrepancy you bring up is the inspiration and the premise of this particular research. I think any user of Netflix can easily mention some of their hit shows, Strange Things, Squid Game, you know, back in the day, Orange is the New Black. I don't think the same can be said for movies and certainly not on the same level of, I guess, cultural penetration. So I wanted to do some research into what that difference is between the Netflix original TV show strategy versus its movie strategy and seeing what are the underlying causes for the weaknesses in Netflix's movie strategy, not just compared to its TV shows, but also to the movies of peers in the industry. Um, of course, many of them being the Hollywood studios who have launched their own direct-to-consumer products. So I started off looking at content spend. It's no surprise that Netflix spends far more on TV shows than it does for movies. I think it's going to close out 2022, spending about $4.20 on TV shows for every $1 it spends on movies. And one of the exciting things I was able to do with Ampere's content spend data is pair it with our popularity score, which of course, as you know, tracks online engagement that allows us to see which titles are resonating with consumers. By pairing the spend and that popularity after release, I was able to model 
an estimate for the return on investment and found that TV shows have a 25% higher return on investment than Netflix movies. So there is that gap there. And that's really interesting to see the the content spend in particular there and the, the sort of weighting of TV in terms of spend within the Netflix overall picture. And as you mentioned there, obviously the, the major legacy studios, if you like, are also competing in the direct-to-consumer space. They have their back catalogs and they have successful popular movie franchises. So it's a real challenge for Netflix to compete, isn't it? Yes, definitely. I mean, it's obviously no secret that the market has become far more competitive in the last three years than it was when Netflix you know, entered this industry and achieved significant growth. And now it's coming up against companies who have been producing popular movies and popular TV shows for decades, far longer than Netflix has even existed. And it's having to compete on that title level a lot more than previously when its major competitors in, let's say, the US were largely Hulu and Amazon Prime Video. Now it's a much busier picture. And a related problem that you touch on in the report is around self-sufficiency and that Netflix doesn't own the rights to a lot of big budget franchises, certainly not big budget movie franchises. So it has to sort of create its own, whereas the legacy studios have, have fan bases already built around some of those franchises. What have been Netflix's inroads into building its own franchises? So Netflix has certainly made attempts that we've seen on constructing its own original movie franchises. We've seen some success within the teen rom-com genre. So trilogies that come to mind include The Kissing Booth and To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which have generally done well upon release, but because of their genre and I guess their target audience, they haven't reached the same broad appeal that some of the legacy studios have with their major franchises. So if you think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe or Fast and Furious, Jurassic Park, these are operating on a much larger scale with their franchises than Netflix has been able to achieve for itself at this point. And of course, the entrance of direct-to-consumer platforms poses a threat to Netflix and its space in the market. On an initial level, these studios that have launched their own products have now begun to reclaim their title. So they're not licensing Star Wars to Netflix, for example. That's coming in-house to be offered exclusively in the SVOD space on Disney+. And that's happening across multiple franchises. The secondary level to that is that these new platforms are also licenses or buyers of content themselves. So for companies who produce highly popular titles that haven't gone to -to direct-to-consumer They are now in a better position because the increased pool of buyers in the market is driving up the price, potentially making it harder for Netflix to license these major titles from those studios that haven't gone direct to consumer. There's a sort of broader question here, I guess, is what is the role of movies within Netflix's offer? Because if you're watching on Netflix, it's just a screen, it's just a piece of content, whether it's 90 minutes or 60 minutes or 40 minutes. What role do you think movies have within that offer, just within purely the world of Netflix? This is a really interesting question because I think any user of Netflix would associate Netflix with its major TV brands. But looking at some of our consumer research data that we conducted at the start of 2022 in the United States, we found that 42% of Netflix subscribers in America claimed that the platform's wide movie selection was a core reason for why they took Netflix. And that was more than any other factor presented to those respondents. From those content spend figures I mentioned earlier, it is clear that Netflix is spending far more on TV shows than on movies. In terms of pinpointing where movies fit in within the catalog ecosystem, essentially, 
One interesting thing that is specifically relevant for Netflix and increasingly so newer platforms is the nature of US produced content or locally produced content versus content produced internationally. Our consumer data shows that consumers watch overseas movies with subtitles very often, more so than they do for overseas TV series. So in many markets, that difference is marginal, but it is fairly consistent. And it essentially points to the idea that international movies or movies produced outside of your home market are more portable. They're likely to play better across borders than TV shows So I think for a platform like Netflix, which is, of course, a global platform and has been for many years now, the interplay between its globally popular US originated content versus making inroads in international markets and then ideally hoping that content also plays in markets not initially intended for that content is where this is going to be key for Netflix. The other thing I wanted to just touch on in this section of the podcast was the role of the theatrical window for Netflix's movies. And you make the case very uh, clearly that where Netflix is falling behind its direct-to-consumer rivals is that it doesn't have that theatrical window, both as a revenue stream in itself, but also as a massive promotional vehicle for those titles. Do you want to just talk about that a little more? Yeah, certainly. One of the core aspects of my research was looking at how the popularity of Netflix movies evolves from pre-release, the release period, and then post-release compared to the other major studios. So I took a sample from Netflix and then major studios like Warner Brothers, Universal, or English language scripted titles that they have released at the start of 2016 to the start of 2020. So essentially cutting off just before the COVID-19 pandemic started closing down economies. And what I found, which was quite interesting, is it's a story, it's a similar story that plays through the evolution of a, of a film where because of the nature of a theatrical release and the risks that comes with it, major studios are far more likely to heavily invest in promotion on a title level for those movies than Netflix would on, again, on a title level. So looking at, for example, trailer releases, we found that the average Netflix film within this particular sample, a trailer was released for that movie around 30 days before release. But for the likes of Disney and Warner Brothers, this was in excess of 140 days. And that's not even including COVID outliers when, of course, films were delayed and then you'd have maybe even 18 months between the initial trailer release and the actual theatrical release for the film. So in that initial release period, because there's less promotion for Netflix's straight-to-streaming films, there is less awareness of the title leading up to release. Then within that release period, Netflix movies peak at a lower level compared to its major studio peers. And then finally, the engagement with Netflix movies decays very rapidly compared to its peers. So major studios will release their film in theatres, and then after a window of exclusivity, it will then make its way through the regular life cycle of a physical release and then further onto pay TV and perhaps SVOD. Whereas Netflix doesn't have that life cycle, it exists on the platform once it premieres. And in most instances, it's very quickly consumed by those who want to watch it and the engagement then falls off very quickly. Thanks, Rahul. There were some great points there. And I think we have some common themes with our other guests as well. Really, to say that it's not just about having great content, it's about making it work across the whole life cycle of that content. So you really get a return on the investment. And the investment these days can be pretty significant, as we'll learn when we talk to our other colleagues about what's happening in TV drama and sport. 
So next, let's talk to Mesa about uh, some research into two of the biggest franchises in the entertainment industry of the last decade or so, Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. And we've seen this year the release of high-end, very expensive TV dramas spun off these for HBO Max and for Amazon Prime. So Mesa, tell us about your research, what you covered, and what the impact of these big shows was. Yeah, so initially when we first started seeing the viewership numbers, it seemed like Amazon was going to acquire more customers from the show than HBO Max because they announced that they got 25 million views globally, while HBO Max said that they got 9 million views. And although HBO's numbers were US-based while Amazon's were global, HBO is not available in as many regions as Amazon. But instead, what I found is that for Amazon Prime, which is already saturated, Rings of Power really didn't cause much of an impact on signups. However, for HBO Max, which is still a growing platform, we do see a clear impact on customer acquisition when it comes to such big titles. And especially for House of the Dragon, which actually, if you look at our SVOD economics data, it generated the highest peak in signup rate since June 2021, which was when the Friends reunion came out and all the Harry Potter movies were made available on the platform. Also, not just looking at the differences in sign-up activity, but also churn and what users do after they churn. In Q1 and Q2, Amazon users were more likely to eventually, after a couple of weeks or months, resubscribe to the service than HBO Max users, who will more likely switch to other services. And also, when we track customer activity after they churn, we see that HBO Max is not a common choice among switchers from other services, but Amazon is. Interestingly, it is likely for Amazon users to only have Amazon. So essentially what we see from Rings of Power and House of the Dragon is that for Amazon, it's more a case of customer retention rather than driving the sign-up rate significantly, while HBO still do rely on these big titles to increase their customer base. So I suppose it's quite a scary prospect to think that Amazon has spent, what, reportedly billion dollars or whatever on uh, on a series just to retain its its current viewers. But then I guess the US is a very mature market. So it's a slightly different, as you say, a slightly different context, whereas HBO Max is still growing. But if it's not boosting subscribers in the US, why would Amazon spend all that money on this series? What's in it for them? Yeah, you're right. So they did spend a lot of money on the series. And actually, budget estimates put this show as the most expensive TV show ever made. But what I found while doing this research is that even though it's not boosting subscribers, it did, for example, boost engagement to other franchises. So according to Amper's popularity score, in anticipation of the release of Rings of Power, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit franchises gained in popularity two months prior to its release. And actually what's interesting is that HBO also offers these trilogies on their platform. So both services, not just Amazon, benefited from this increased engagement caused by Rings of Power. And I think also Prime Video and HBO Max not being as globally established as Netflix these series could be beneficial in driving subscribers abroad. You know, HBO Max was only available in America until late 2021. And that's when they launched in Spain, Andorra and the Nordics. And then earlier this year, they launched in 15 new territories across Central and Eastern Europe. And I think there's a big rollout in, in 2023 as well, isn't there, for HBO Max. So having this in the catalogue will undoubtedly help uh, as it continues to grow. But you mentioned there that a lot of the research was around the US consumers. And it's interesting to see that these two mega titles, if you like, are kind of sci-fi and fantasy uh, genre titles. What do we know from our consumer research about how popular that genre is? 
Yeah, so um, in terms of the genre of these shows, in the U.S., sci-fi and fantasy only comes in as consumers' fifth favorite genre, with comedy and horror as their top two. Meanwhile, in Europe and Latin America, it comes in as the consumer's second favorite genre. So as I was saying, HBO is now expanding to different countries. And with the stronger appeal for this genre outside the U.S., these shows will maybe generate a larger subscriber uplift in those other markets. So not for U.S. consumers, but globally, I do believe that HBO and Amazon are playing the right field with going after sci-fi and fantasy genres. Nice, Sarah. Thank you very much for that. I think there's some interesting parallels with what Rahul was talking about with the TV content for global players. And also, I think what Jack is going to be touching on with some of the sports rights and the challenges for global streamers coming up. So, Jack, you've been looking at the role of sports in the streaming wars. And as we've discussed, we've seen global streamers investing billions of dollars in TV series and movies. But another type of content of increasing interest to the streamers is probably the most expensive of the lot, and that's live sports rights. Give us a bit of background on your research. When did they start getting involved in sports? Streaming of live sports is not necessarily a, a recent trend. However, it's been something that has seen only significant investments since just about 2017, 2016. The major event that sort of signifies the beginning of, of the streaming sports era is the launch of The Zone, the pure play sports OTT service, which launched in Germany in 2016, acquired few minority rights here and there, then expanded in Japan by acquiring the rights to the top football league, the uh, J1 league, as well as the rights to a sub package of the Bundesliga and Champions League rights in Germany. Ever since it's increased its spend uh, enormously, reaching $2.7 billion in 2022. And uh, its major market right now is Italy, where it spends more than $1 billion. It's about $1.1 billion across all of its rights portfolio. And in fact, 2022 has been a momentous year with Italy uh, being the first major market seeing a streaming platform account for more than 50% of the total spend on sports rights. And this, this element, alongside possibly the single biggest deal in sports streaming with the Thursday night NFL football, was the reason why I started to look into what's the role of sports in the, in the so-called streaming wars. It's fascinating because uh, sports has only seen major investment in the past sort of five years. And in fact, in Europe in 2022, in, across the biggest five markets in Europe, we estimate that 20% of the total value sports rights made up by OTT services. And what I found interesting is that looking at other genres, so acquisitions and, um, and originations, that milestone was reached, in fact, in 2018. So there seems to be a significant lag. And uh, I was curious to understand what were the reasons behind it and uh, whether we should expect a similar trajectory for sports, as we've seen with other genres, or whether or not instead there are challenges which are typical to streaming and sports. So we might talk about the competitive landscape changing there. You mentioned DAZN as a pure play player in the field. And obviously, sports are typically owned by national broadcasters, by pay TV operators in that country. And it becoming a global business is a, is a different challenge, given the sums involved. So for context, give us an example of, of a global streamer that's had success with sports rights in its own territory. It possibly is a bit early to talk about success or rather would have to define what success is. And in fact, it's actually 
the beginning of my report looks into the streaming wars and sort of defines them and tries to understand some of the elements that characterize the streaming wars, one of which is the willingness by actors in the markets to make short-term sacrifices in exchange for long-term strategic gains. And that, to a certain extent, has happened in sports, meaning that we talked about this one just before. It's the biggest sports-dedicated streaming platform in the world, spends $2.7 billion on sports rights alone, but we estimate that it generates just $2 billion across its subscription base in revenue only, in subscription revenue only, sorry. And while it also generates some revenues from uh, advertising and other ancillary activities, we know that it is not profitable yet. And for any other major sports streaming efforts done around the world, as I said, it's a bit early, Possibly the deal between Amazon and the NFL for Thursday Night Football is giving signs that there is a viable sports streaming model. The interest that is garnered uh, has resulted in the NFL licensing a special Black Friday football game starting from 2023. It's early days still to be able to judge whether or not Amazon will be able to make a return on the investment that it's made. Again, we're talking about more than $1 billion per season. But in the case of Amazon in particular, we're also talking about a company that will make a, a huge return not only from the subscription to the video service, but also to the retail service. It's not a coincidence that they have gone for this new Black Friday game in the United States on the biggest shopping day of the year in the United States. One of the things that's interesting that you talked there about the NFL Amazon deal, obviously eye-watering value. And we've talked by comparison about very expensive TV shows and movies. I guess the added challenge around sports rights is that it's traditionally broken up on a per-territory basis. So the competitive landscape for a global streamer trying to acquire sports rights becomes very complicated and potentially very expensive indeed. Absolutely. This has been actually the reason why DAZN's own tagline, the Netflix of sports, possibly an official tagline, but they did use it themselves. It's possibly the reason why the Netflix of sports hasn't quite happened. and It might never happen. The incredibly local nature of sports rights markets and sports broadcasting in general and their local tastes make selling global rights a bit more challenging. There's few truly global top properties when it comes to sports. And even those that are truly global might rather want to maximize the return that they can make from negotiating on a country by country or region by region basis, as opposed to selling on a flat fee and not having full control. And then another big reason why a Netflix sports can't quite happen or hasn't yet happened is that when it comes to sports, the platforms don't own the, the rights. So we know very well how Netflix and the other big streaming platforms have invested increasingly on original content for the purposes of having control over their content offering and not being reliant on third parties. When it comes to sports, that's virtually impossible. So something that we've, we're seeing more and more happening when it comes to properties that are trying to attract investment from streaming platforms is to lengthen the terms of the deals. Uh, we're seeing more and more five-year deals, uh, both at domestic levels, but at international levels. The Premier League has licensed a lot of its rights across the world for six-year terms, and that makes it more likely for a streaming platform to make a return on the investment. And you mentioned there around the, the, the concept of a Netflix for sport and the challenges therein. 
just want to ask you about Netflix itself as a platform. And if you look at their competitive landscape now, they're up against Disney, which has TV, it has movies, it has sport. They're up against Amazon, which has TV, movies and sport. Is sport an essential part of the mix? Will Netflix have to address that at some point? Or is for the challenges you've outlined, is that just going to be a bridge too far for them? Six months ago, I would have probably given you a definite answer that we shouldn't expect Netflix to invest in sports. However, given the recent history of Netflix changing their minds on some major strategies, the most obvious example being advertising, I'm not going to give you as definitive an answer. However, yes, for the reasons I've stated before, I think that it would be against the current approach, the current strategy that Netflix has undertaken when it comes to content to increase their spend massively. You know, as you mentioned, sports is possibly the most expensive uh, genre in itself and, and top properties in particular make up for the vast majority of the overall value. And it goes against the global content strategy uh, that Netflix has undertaken where it is able to amortize the cost and essentially exploit its investments across its entire footprint. Whereas when it comes to sports, that's not necessarily possible. Uh, that doesn't mean that Netflix doesn't have a role when it comes to sports and sports consumption. So our sports consumer survey shows that 18% of sports fans used Netflix in the last month to watch some sports content. Sports documentaries has been very successful and it's a genre which has seen increasing investment from most streaming platforms. But yeah, I still am not expecting Netflix to, to buy the live rights to a major sports property, but I'm I'm ready to be proven wrong next month. <laughs> so thanks for that, Jack. And obviously, at Ampere, we'll continue to monitor what Netflix gets up to. Uh, and bearing in mind that they used to say they wouldn't include advertising uh, and they're launching ad tiers across Europe uh, about now. What I want to do now is to bring Mesa and Rahul back into the conversation and compare notes really on the perspectives of TV series and movies in the sort of mix of global streamers and where the future of global streaming is going in terms of investment. Uh, Mesa, you had some interesting insights into the impact of Amazon's NFL rights on subscribers in the US compared to Rings of Power. So what did you find? Yeah, actually, when Rings of Power first came out, Amazon announced that the premiere broke viewership records. So it's the 25 million global viewers that I mentioned earlier. And then 13 days later, they launched the NFL, Thursday Night Football, and they break another record, which was the highest ever sign up over a three hour period. So when looking at the SVOD economics data, we can clearly see that the NFL did get more signups than Rings of Power. But still, I think both didn't have significant impact on the sign-up rate. And this isn't very surprising for Amazon because really the only thing that can get those sign-ups really moving, and I think it's the same for Netflix, are things like price changes or events like Prime Day or Black Friday. But yeah, titles or sporting events are not really going to do that. I think it's fascinating. We haven't really seen huge effects. It's, it's true. It's pricing usually that has a bigger impact on, uh, on subscriptions. So that kind of makes me uh, posit whether, A, for existing established streaming platforms, sports might be a bit more about retention 
It might be a, a bit more about upselling. In the case of Peacock, for instance, all the sports uh, lies in the more premium tiers, as opposed to just being on the basic tier. And that's something that, in a sense, reflects the value, reflects the cost that these platforms are facing. On the other hand, I do wonder if sports may be good to accelerate growth at an early stage. So, you know, we're seeing Bioplay, for instance, adopt this strategy in Europe, buying rights, premium rights in territories where it is just about to launch, it's launching. Uh, and that probably serves that specific purpose, but maybe long term, the impact is more minimal. And it's more about, as I said, upselling and churn retention. It's a reality check then for the big global streamers that you can spend a billion dollars on NFL rights or on a high-end drama, and it may not actually move the needle, but you have to do it. You have to be competitive. You can't afford not to make those investments. Jack, one question I had about the role of sports compared to scripted and unscripted titles is the function they play for households. So I feel like big shows like The Rings of Power and House of the Dragon that Mesa has mentioned are really good at proving the value of a service to a household. It can draw many individuals, whereas smaller budget fare like reality shows might prove value to the individual. If we're thinking about sports content and then live sports content and the demographics that they appeal to, what function do you think they play in the household? Are they similar in a way to tentpole titles where they appeal to everyone or are they for distinct individuals? And then how does that differ specifically for the likes of Amazon and Apple? I think they do have a similar um, impact on, on viewing as those tentpole titles that you just mentioned. Sports certainly has an ability to, to bring families together and watch together. You'll watch with your, with your kids. It also has a huge community. So, of course, some sports are just popular because they're popular. But there's also the notion that you want to cheer for your local team, for the university that you went to, for the team that your mom supported when she was a kid. And that has huge, huge implications. And that is the reason why sports markets are so, so local, as opposed to maybe some of the tentpole content that we've been talking about. You know, Tolkien probably has um, resonates more globally than the NFL, but I'm sure that in Pittsburgh, a Steelers fan will be a bit more religious about watching the NFL than, <laughs> than uh, Lord of the Rings. So to try and pull this together, so Rahul, I just wanted to pick up with you. Again, talked about the global stream as the competitive landscape, and you have these companies throwing everything into the sort of cauldron. They've got the movies, TV, sport. Where is Netflix heading in that mix? What's the Netflix brand becoming, do you think? My impression at this stage is that Netflix's strength lies within its TV catalogue and its almost unique ability to popularise international TV shows. Without an international distributor like Netflix, I'm not entirely sure shows like Money Heist or Squid Game could become the global phenomena that they did. And in the context of what the major studios are now bringing to the SVOD market, I think Netflix should focus on the international offering it has. And of course, one way to achieve that is to produce localized content. I think bringing up the quality of those non-US originated titles will help make those titles more popular in their home market, hopefully have positive spillover effects in becoming popular in international markets, and overall help Netflix distinguish itself from the competition, Disney+, Plus, HBO Max, Paramount+, Plus, which 
still largely have US originated catalogs. So I think including more international titles and making that a core part of their brand whilst improving quality is, is the best way to go for them. And Mesa, in terms of looking at big TV dramas that the big global streamers are making, will they continue to be an important part of the global streamers offer? So as we said, it aids customer retention in the US, it's driving signups abroad, and it's also helping services expand their consumer base, like for example, with game franchises being adapted into TV shows. So of course, with the competition becoming more intense, companies need to continue delivering bigger, better, more popular content. But I'm not sure for how long this can keep going. I think overall, with the growth of subscribers slowing down, the much wider set of options consumers now have when it comes to choosing a streaming service, and of course, external factors like the increased cost of living, which makes customers more selective and sensitive to content offering, pricing, etc. I'm not sure if this is sustainable. Finally, Jack, in terms of where sports play a role in the future of streaming services, where do you think it's heading? Well, we talked a lot about some of the challenges maybe to the sports streaming model, but it's not going to go anywhere. We do expect that more and more consumption of sports is going to go over the top online. So from our consumer, sports consumer, we know that 28% of sports fans actively prefer, would want to watch all of their sports via an OTT service. So content providers will have to meet that demand. Furthermore, you know, we know uh, that, that streaming platforms, major streamers are very interested in getting a larger share of the rights in the United States and globally. So it's uh, almost an open secret that the latest share of the NFL rights called the Sunday ticket will likely be licensed to a streaming platform. What I expect is that this greater competition is going to lead to further growth in the value of sports TV rights. We're seeing that already, you know, and some of that growth is directly related to investment from streaming platforms. And finally, when it comes to content, the ability of streaming numerous feeds essentially for the same game, maybe stats focused one, betting focused one, there's definitely an opportunity to experiment. Well, thanks, Jack. I think what we've heard today from everyone reinforces the view that the challenges, but also the opportunities are great for people playing in the global streaming market. The competition is intensifying, uh, the prices are going up, the strategic gambles are quite significant in the landscape moving forward. We'll be covering that at Ampere, so do stay in touch with us. That's all we have time for, I'm afraid. So thanks very much to all our guests for their time and sharing their research with us today. We've heard from Rahul about Netflix's challenge around making its movies more successful. We have heard from Mesa about the impact of high-profile TV dramas on global streamers. And from Jack about the development of sports within streaming services. So all the reports discussed today are available on Ampere's website. So do get in touch if you'd like to access any of that research and if you're not a client. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to the AMP newsletter and make sure you're subscribed to the AMP podcast as well. And for more on Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com or just get in touch by emailing info at ampereanalysis.com. That's info at ampereanalysis.com. I'm Nick Thomas. I've been your host today. The producer of this episode was Rory Goodrick. And special thanks to Henry Beckwith, who founded this podcast back in 2020, who's moving on to pastures new. Thanks, Henry. You'll be missed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks very much for listening.